You are now listening to the February 12th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Nearer to My God to Thee, the sermon, and equipping the saints. First, let's begin with Nearer My God to Thee. John Backus from the program Nearer My God to Thee. What do you consider the most difficult thing in your spiritual life? Maybe it's a desire to love others more, or perhaps it's sin, or not living in accordance with God's Word. In my own spiritual life, the most difficult thing is the clash between my will and God's will. Although I say that I'm always seeking God's will, I find myself asking God to fulfill my will instead of seeking His will. As I come into conflict in between the Lord's will and that of my own, I ultimately realize that I was trying to walk ahead of the Lord, realizing that truth makes me ashamed. However, I don't think I'm the only one going through this. Today, we'll be sharing the hymn, Have Thine Own Way, Lord, written by a woman named Adelaide A. Pollard. Let's first listen to the hymn. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way Thou art the potter I am the clay Mold me and make me After thy will While I am waiting, yielded and still, have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Here's the first verse. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will, while I am waiting, yielded and still. From verse 1 through 4, she wrote, Have thine own way, Lord, and asked for the Lord's will to be done. However, in the beginning, she didn't ask for the Lord's will to be done. Through a drama, we'll see how she came to ask for the Lord's will to be done. Adelaide Pollard was a faithful person who loved the Lord. Although she had a weak body compared to other people, she always wanted to dedicate her life to the Lord. She had many friends who were faithful like herself. Among her many friends, there were those who went to several countries around the world as missionaries to share the gospel of Christ. Every time Pollard heard news from her friends on the mission field, she was happy yet also embarrassed. It's because she couldn't go on missions due to her frailty. Therefore, she always asked God to make her healthy. One day, she heard news from her friend on the mission field, and she decided to leave to Africa for missions. She began making specific plans for the African mission field and began fundraising to bring in funds. Therefore, 
We must share the gospel of Jesus Christ until the end of the earth. This is what our Lord Jesus has commanded us. I desire to go to the land of Africa, which Jesus loves. I need your support to make this possible. Pollard began fundraising to go on missions. She believed sharing the gospel would be pleasing to God, so she thought all the preparations would go smoothly. However, contrary to her belief, even though she was diligently pleading for a few months, she wasn't able to raise enough funds for missions. Ah, <sighs> oh, I just can't understand. I'm trying to do something that will please God, but why aren't things working out? I just can't understand. I can't raise funds, so even though I want to go to Africa, I can't go. It seems like God doesn't want me to go on missions. I should give up now. <sighs> Pollard, who dreamed of becoming a missionary in Africa, was in despair as things were not going according to her plan. Eventually, she decided to end her dream of missions and spent her days feeling sullen. One evening, she attended a small prayer gathering. Pollard once again prayed earnestly to the Lord at the prayer gathering. Lord, please show me a vision for missions. This is what you desire, but why won't you allow it? I desire to go to Africa. Lord, please show me. That night, Pollard asked God to show her a vision for missions. Before the prayer gathering was over, the leader of the gathering asked each person who was gathered to share their prayer request. The people were praying, and it was now time for an old woman to share. My good Lord, please lead us on the path you desire. Please lead us according to your will, no matter what we may face. We desperately pray that your will will be done in our lives. Pollard heard the old woman's prayer and was deeply moved. She felt like the Holy Spirit was directing her to realize that what she was doing was not what God had intended her for her life. After the prayer gathering ended, Pollard began crying as she was walking home. They were tears of repentance. Lord, I have desired to live outside your plan for my life. Please forgive me. I realize that I have been seeking my own will instead of your will. Instead of praying for your will to be done, I prayed for my will to be done. Even my Lord Jesus prayed, yet not as I will, but as you will. But I push for my will to be done. <laughs> Lord, please forgive me. That night, Pollard repented for not acknowledging God as Lord and for asking Him to do what she wanted. While she was praying, she thought of a Bible verse. It was Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 3-4. through four. So, 
So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Paula realized her wrong through the old woman's prayer. She meditated upon the Lord as she began writing. Have thine O way, Lord. Have thine O way. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter. I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, yielded and still. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. If God is the potter, then we are the clay in his hands. The clay must be molded just the way the potter desires. The clay cannot tell the potter to mold it this way or that way. What is our prayer? Do we know God's will? And do we pray that we may live according to his will? Or do we pray for our will to be done? A true prayer is seeking God's will towards us instead of seeking for our will to be done. When we seek his will, we also gain strength and power to follow that will. I hope we can pray that God's plan will be done through his hands that mold us. I'll see you next week from Nearer My God to Thee. Absolute sway.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Miter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is Courage in the Face of Unexpected. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. This week, we turn our attention to another amazing woman from the Old Testament. Naomi was an obscure Jewish woman. Guess what? We're going to look at another obscure Jewish woman today. And uh, her name is Esther. She lived, believe it or not, about 700 years after the time of Naomi. So Naomi lived, um, King David, he came to power about a thousand years before Christ. So Naomi lived a few generations before him, maybe about 11, 1200 BC. So if you fast forward 700 years to about, about the year 600, this is where Esther is, okay? So that's where we are. Like Naomi, Esther serves as another, I mean, amazing, a powerful example of someone who faced unexpected, I mean, crazy, off-the-charts um, circumstances. And listen, how she responded is going to blow you away. And you may already know how she responds. It's still going to blow you away. So hold on tight. Now, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to get to my, I'm going to get to the application at the end of the sermon. To get there, I'm going to teach you guys, we're going to do some history. So you guys ready to take a jaunt through history? Okay, so we're going to walk through some history. And then I'm going to get to um, the heart of it. And it's going to blow you away. So as you might remember, okay, so let's do a little history. You guys ready? I'm going to take you through the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay, Genesis, God calls Abraham. God creates the world, calls Abraham. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob, there's a story where he wrestles with God and he is given the name Israel. Israel, Israel literally means wrestles or contends with God. So God creates the world, calls Abraham. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob wrestles with God, is given the name Israel. And Israel, or Jacob, goes on to have 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of? No, it's uh, Britain, Great Britain. <laughs> Just kidding. The 12 tribes of Israel. Now, one of those sons' name is Joseph. And anyway, long story very short, his brothers sell him into slavery, and he ends up down in Egypt. And so the book of Exodus um, the book of Genesis is the, it's the creation of the world, the, Adam and Eve falling into sin, the calling of Abraham, the establishment of the Jewish people, and how they got down into Egypt. Exodus is how they got coming up out of Egypt. Okay, so Genesis, Exodus. Moses leads them up and he leads them to Sinai, and this is where the book of Leviticus comes in, the Levites. It's the instruction about how to worship God, the law, the Ten Commandments. So this is, um, th this is the book of where the book of Leviticus is in history. Then they leave Sinai and they go up to the promised land and they're supposed to enter into the promised land. And by the way, Moses, this is, Moses was about 1500 BC. So we're about 1500 years before the time of Christ. They're supposed to go into the promised land. They send in 12 spies. 10 of them come back and chicken out. 
Only two, Joshua and Caleb, say, let's go, but they lose out. And so God is so mad with them, he has them wander in the desert for 40 years, and he kills off that generation. That's the book of Numbers. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus is at Sinai, Numbers is wandering in the desert, and then after that 40 years, Moses leads them up to the plains of Moab. Now go back to last week. Remember last week, Naomi, there was a famine, and she fled to the plains of Moab. And Moab, if you remember, if this is Israel, the Sea of Galilee is up here, and down here is the Dead Sea, and the Jordan River runs right between it. On this side of the Jordan River, where modern-day Jordan is, those two countries still exist, Israel, and you, this is where Moab is. This is where Moab is. So Moses leads them up to Moab, and he reiterates the law, Deutero Namas, Deuteronomy. It's the Deutero second Namas giving of the law. It's the second giving of the law. So Moses basically gives a series of three sermons and then dies. That's how I want to go out. Three sermons and <laughs> see you later. It's been real. See you on the other side. God has a sense of humor, by the way, so that might just happen. Um, <laughs> Moses dies, and I can keep going, by the way. Who takes over for him? Joshua, and that's the very next book. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Joshua takes over, leads them into the promised land, and we enter a 400-year period known as the Judges. And it was Naomi that lived during the time of the Judges. So last week is where we were last week. This is where Esther, uh, pardon me, Naomi is. Where am I going with all this? Okay, let me make sure I know what I'm doing with all this. So they enter the land. And there's a 400-year period of judges. After that 400-year period of the judges, the, the Israelites look around at all the other countries and they say, we want a king. Everyone else has a king. We want a king. Well, God has been their king, but I guess he's not good enough. So the God says, listen, if I give you a king, he's going to tax, tax you and send your sons to war. Are you sure you want that? And they go, yeah, 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 we want it. So he gives them Saul. Saul's the first king, followed by David, who's a descendant of Ruth and Boaz, Naomi, that's last week followed by Solomon. Okay, after Solomon, um, the next king, Rehoboam, they, they said to Rehoboam, lighten the taxes. And he goes, no. And so the kingdom, of, the kingdom splits. The 12 tribes are back in the land. They've come up out of Egypt. They've conquered the land. There's a 400-year period of judges. Ten of the tribes up here unite together, and they take the name Israel, Israel. Judah and Benjamin are in the south in Jerusalem, and they, they retain the name Judah because Judah is the bigger of the two tribes. So you have Israel and Judah. It's still Israel, but it's just kind of like a civil war. It's kind of like they're divided. Now, here's, here's what you may not know. After, so it goes Saul, David, Solomon. Now, you have a series after this called the Divided Kingdom. You have kings ruling up here and kings ruling down here. So of all the, there was 19 kings that ruled after Solomon, the, the northern kingdom. How many were good, do you think? Zero. Zero. There was not one good king up here. Now, of the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin at Jerusalem, do you know how many of those kings were good? Eight. Eight were good. So here, here's what happens. There's 19 kings up here. None of them are good. So God eventually sends the Assyrians down, and they conquer the northern kingdom and take them off into exile. The southern kingdom, they've had a series of good kings, so God holds off judgment on them. While he's holding off judgment, the Babylonians conquer the Assyrians, and they're the big boys on the block now. Well, they're eventually, God's fed up with them. So right around 597, God sends the Babylonians down and conquers 
the southern kingdom and takes them off into exile. This is, this, this is what we call the Babylonian exile. It lasts 70 years. It's prophesied in Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the prophet, the weeping prophet. He saw Jerusalem fall to the Babylonians. That's why he's called the weeping prophet. He also wrote Lamentations. And the Bible, um, he... He says they're going to go off to 70 years. And if you remember in Jeremiah, a false prophet, it was all these false prophets. And you know what false prophets were doing back in this day? They were, they were preaching prosperity. They were. If you read the book of Jeremiah, that's, that was the problem. They were all saying, don't listen to him. God's going to break the back of the Babylonians. They're not, it's not going to happen. And one of them named Hananiah said, God's going to break their back in two years. He'll break the yoke. They're going to be gone. And Jeremiah says, you're a false prophet and you're dead. And he dies. That's why you don't want to be in that line of work. It's a bad line of work to be in. Okay. But here's, so I'm, just track with me. So they're up in exile. Now remember, we're, we're right around, they're, they're up in exile. So we're right around 500 50 years before the time of Christ. This is when the exile is happening. So we're getting close to the time of Christ. It's just a couple hundred years away. After the 70 years, okay, so while they're up in exile, it's the Persians that conquer the Babylonians. So Cyrus the Great, king, he was a Persian king. Cyrus the Great gathers the tribes of the Medes and the Persians, and they gather together and conquer the Babylonians. Now the Persians are the big guys on the block. By the way, do you want to know why you want to believe the Bible? Because you can account for everything in the world just the way it is. I can account for why you're wearing clothes. I can account for why there's marriage. I can account for why there's two genders. I can account for everything. I can account for why there's a seven-day work week. But you can also trust the Bible because it is a true account of world history. Okay, so after the 70 years, remember, the, the Persians conquer the Babylonians. So it's the Persians that allow the Jews to come back. The books of Ezra, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Ruth, is in the book of Judges. Joshua judges Ruth. The, the last judge, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, that's the kings. First and Second Chronicles just chronicles everything. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. So the, the point is that I just walked you through the first 17 books of the Bible and I got us to write to 500 years before the time of Christ. After the 70 years, the Persians allow the Jews to come back. That's Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, another guy by the name of Zerubbabel. They come back, but here's the kicker. Not all the Jews came back. Not all the Jews wanted to come back. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah, before the 70-year the exile, he said, go up into Babylon and make your homes there. Settle down. This is, you can't stop God's judgment. So you might as well just accept it and settle down. And some Jews did. And so not all the Jews came back. And Esther was one of those that apparently either didn't come back or hadn't come back yet. She is an obscure Jewish woman living in Susa, Persia. Susa is the capital city of Persia, the Persian Empire. And um, at this point, she's an obscure Jewish woman. But here's where, okay, this is where everything, that's, here's where things get crazy. The Persian king throws a party, okay? And it must have been a good party. He invites all his buddies. They're drinking. They're having a good time. And during that party, which probably lasted, I mean, who knows, a long time, he calls his queen, and the queen at that time was a queen by the name of Vashti. So imagine all his buddies are drinking, and he goes, hey, have you seen how beautiful the queen is? Hey, go get the queen and bring her to me. Now, we don't know why, but Vashti said, I'm not coming. 
And it could be, and I honestly think it is that she probably had some level of morals and she didn't want to be patronized by a bunch of drunk men. On all honesty, that's probably what the king wanted to do is come and dance before us, you know, do whatever. And she's like, no, thanks, not going to do it. That's a problem. That's a problem. Because when the king makes a request, the king wants that request met. As a result, Vashti is immediately vanquished. We don't totally know what happened to her. She was kicked out of the court for sure, never to return, never to see the king again. She lost her royal position. She very, may, very well may have been executed. We don't know. But it's on that note, church, it's my honor to take us to the word of God today after all that. <laughs> so Esther chapter two, church, I present to you the word. Oh, so let me just set this up. They're going to do a search for the, they're going to do a search for a new queen. Then the king's attendants who served him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. And may the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom and have them bring every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa. That's the capital of Persia. That's where Esther is. To the harem into the custody of Hegai, or Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. And let their cosmetics be given to them. I just think that's the coolest little thing right there they throw in there. Oil of Olay, you know where? It's, it's good company. It's been around for a long time. Then let the, young women who, let the young woman who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti. And this suggestion pleased the king, and he did accordingly. And as you might have already guessed, an obscure Jewish woman by the name of Esther living in the capital city of Susa in Persia an exile in a foreign land wins the favor of the king. So church, again, I continue in the word of God. The king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight, more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all the officials and servants, and it was Esther's feast. And I, I didn't put verse 19 on there. It's cool if you look it up in your Bible. But he was so enamored with her and just so excited about this. He like cut taxes and did all these things for just the whole kingdom. He was just so absolutely excited about this woman. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, and I know you are, God must have really had a good reason to put her, that is Esther, in such a high position. Guess what? You'd be right. You'd be right. Because things are about to take an unexpected turn for the Jewish people no one saw coming. And here's what happened. So one day, the king appoints a man by the name of Haman to a very prominent position within the kingdom. And everybody begins to do what people do when people of high position walk in. They genuflex. Bow. Everyone except one man does this. Who's that one man? Yeah, man by the name of Mordecai. Mordecai goes, nope, not going to do it. Not going to do it. Now, Mordecai happens to be an Israelite, and he happens to be the uncle of Queen Esther. As a matter of fact, Esther's parents died when she was young, and so she was essentially raised by Mordecai. Now, here's side note. This is, I'm going to go back to history, so track, because this is really, really fascinating. The, the, the Bible doesn't tell us why Mordecai wouldn't bow and show honor or deference to Haman, because certainly Mordecai would have done it for the king and for other king's officials. Um, he was up in Bab the Babylonian exile, so he certainly had done this for others. Why not this guy? Why not now? 
It could, we don't know the reason why, but let me give you one possible biblical reason why. It has to do with the fact that Haman was a descendant of Amalek, the Amalekites. And if you remember, it was the Amalekites who had attacked the Jewish people when, they, when Moses led them up out of slavery in Egypt. So when Moses, 1500 BC, when Moses led them up out of Egypt, it wasn't that they were just running from the Egyptians. They were encountering people groups who were fighting them as they were trying to move forward. And one of those groups was the descendants of Amalek or the Amalekites. And so check this out. They, this is all happening 1,500 years before the time of Christ. The Jews eventually, Joshua leads them into the promised land, and then there's a 400-year period of judges, right? And then the people cry out for a king. Who's their first king? Saul. And you know the very first thing God tells Saul to do? Go kill the Amalekites. That's exactly what he does. God has a very good memory. 400 years. And by the way, it makes you appreciate. Imagine if God didn't forget your sins and wash away your sins. As Psalm, uh, we just read uh, Psalm 103 earlier today. Psalm 103, 13 says, uh, uh, 103, 12 and 13 says, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on all those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Amen? But in this case, he doesn't. <laughs> and for the, he remembers what these people had done to his people as, he, as Moses was leading them out. And so this is what um, God told Saul to do. Remember, Samuel's the last judge, First and Second Samuel, and he hands the baton off to the first king, Saul, First and Second Kings. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I, I noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child, infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now, what did Saul do? He did most of what he was supposed to do, just not all of it, you know? And remember, partial obedience is what? Yes. Partial obedience is disobedience. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and of the lambs and all that was good and all that was not, uh, and all, pardon me, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. They're very noble people. So, here's the point. This, this, this is at 1,000 B.C. Remember, this is when Saul is. Saul's right around 1,000 B.C. By the way, Saul, David, and Solomon each reigned 40 years. That's how you can remember that. So Saul reigned 40 years, then David did, then, then the kingdom split. So we're right around 1,000 B.C. Saul's the first king. He doesn't do what God, he doesn't wipe out Amalek or his descendants Fast forward to the year 597, or fast forward even beyond that, we're another 70 years after that, because this is where we are, and the king of Persia takes a man by the name of Haman, who's a descendant of the Amalekites, and puts him in a prominent position, and guess who probably would have known that? Mordecai. Why didn't he bow? Because he knew that this person had hindered the plans of God. Hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Now, again, the Bible doesn't say that. This is me. This is conjecture. But it's based on history. It's based on the Bible. I think it's a really good possibility. But here's the point. Regardless of why Mordecai wouldn't bow to Haman, he doesn't. 
And Haman takes notice, and he's mad. He's mad. And what happens next, the story gets even more weird. So here's what happens next. Haman finds out, who's that guy? And he goes, he's Mordecai. Well, who is he? Well, he's a Jew. He wants wants to kill all the Jews now. He's just going to wipe them all out for what Mordecai has done. So long before Hitler, there was Haman. And I mean that because the Jews have been attacked at various times in world history. We often think of Hitler first. You should think of Haman first. And here it is. It's the face-off of Mordecai and Haman. Here's what it says. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down and pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, that he was a Jew and the people are Jews, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. And that was the king at the time. Now, the stage is set. Okay, the stage is set. Enter Queen Esther again. Mordecai then goes to Queen Esther. He sends a a servant to send her a message. And the the servant's name is Hathak. And he goes and he says, hey, could you go to the king on behalf of the Jewish people and see if he'll intercede to save us? Remember, the Jews are going back into the promised land. These are the Jews that remained here, and they're about to be annihilated. So Esther gets this message. And um, now more history. Go back to Queen Vashti. This way. Go back to Queen Vashti. You remember when the king called her and she didn't come? What was the result? Yeah, it's bad news. Well, that's because when the king calls, you come. Or there's consequences. Well, in the same way, a person wasn't allowed to appear, appear before the king unless summoned by the king. In other words, you weren't allowed to call a meeting with the king. The king calls a meeting with you. Amen? That's how it works. Because if you called a meeting with the king and the king wasn't in the mood for a meeting, you were in a bad way. And by the way, um, this applied to Queen Esther. What you need to know about uh, biblical times is that if a king made a law, it could not be reversed. It could only be amended. And so this was law. It wasn't just that, that, that uh, the, the king liked this. It was law, and so it had to be obeyed. And Esther knows this. And this is where the story picks up. Then Esther spoke to Hathak, that is the servant that Mordecai said, and said, and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman to come to the king in the inner courtyard who is not summoned, he has only one law, that is to be put to death, unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. And they reported Esther's words to Mordecai. Mordecai then sends Porhathic back again. This was texting in the old days. And here's what happens. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. And by the way, this is some of the most famous words in all the Bible. Do not think for yourself, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise Uh, for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such, say it with me, a time as this. 
Now, Mordecai trusts that God is going to deliver his people one way or another, but he challenges Esther to consider the obvious. And here's the obvious, that God has raised her up and made her queen for such a time as this. Esther, don't you see what God is doing and how he has been working even before we didn't see what was going to be in our lap? Before we ever saw this coming our way, God was already at work in preparing us for when it falls in our lap. But here's the point. Esther finds herself in a very difficult situation. She must make a bold decision, possibly, that not could, o- could not only cost her her royal position, but possibly her very life as well. It's a life and death decision. Again, there's no way she could have seen this coming. It's at this point that Esther makes a decision that will literally go down in world history, a historic decision. Again, church, I present to you the word of God. And by the way, I'm going to spend the last 10 minutes just unpacking this verse because it's loaded. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews, not just some of them, all of them, to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. In other words, don't just fast one meal, not two, day and night fast so that you can be focused and and presumably, obviously, pray. It doesn't say that in this passage, but of course, if you're fasting, you're praying. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I, I and my young women will also fast and do the same. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Amen. You guys, the word of God is so powerful. So here's what I want to do. I want to spend the last couple minutes highlighting a couple of critically important points from this passage. And you guys, here's why they're so important. Because... I'm not even talking our culture. The world as we know it seems to be off the rails, doesn't it? Um, uh, this is a whole nother sermon series, but I, I, think, that's the, I think God's judgment is here <laughs> in, in many ways. And I'm not saying it's end times or anything. I mean, I'm not even getting into that. But I think part of this is a big part of this is God's judgment. We can, I don't know what the future holds for us as Christians in the world. Even the Christians in Afghanistan A few days ago, they were living in peace and safety, and that's been taken away. How she responded in her generation can speak to us in this generation. So let me point out a couple of things she did. The first was this. Esther responded to the unexpected by turning to the spiritual. Why do I say that? Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and go vote so that the king will do what we want him to do. No. Go fast. Go fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my young women will also fast and do the same. You know what's so interesting about the book of Esther? The name God is not mentioned. God is not referenced once in this book. You will not find the name of God in there. The only other book that I think does that is the Song of Solomon's. But here's why that doesn't matter. Because what we see is a woman in Esther, who has an amazing and deep and residing faith in God, so much so that when something hits her out of left field, something she could never saw, never saw coming, a life or death type of decision, what's the first thing she does? She turns to the Lord. She does not seek political answers. She doesn't seek her personal answers. She doesn't do anything by worldly standards. She runs to the Lord and tells others to do the same. Esther understood That before approaching the king of Persia, she needed to go before the king of kings. Amen? And yet, and this is the confession, you guys. I've been a Christian 35 years. I'm a pastor. I've been to seminary. I'm really holy. (laughs) 
I cannot tell you, almost without, it's my default, that when, when things that I never saw coming land in my lap, I rarely turn to the spiritual first. That's the time of confession. I try to handle it in my own power, according to my own wisdom, my own terms, my own resources. It is incredible what this woman did. Esther knew that the battle belongs to the Lord, right? Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. There was a reason that God raised this woman to be queen, because she was going to be the type of woman that made this decision. She responded to the unexpected by turning to the spiritual. The second thing she did, I'm going to go through these quick. I got two more. Esther didn't let the unexpected keep her from doing what was critical. And the critical thing to do in, every, in, every, in any and in every situation is to do that which is right in the eyes of the Lord. Listen, one of the times that you are going to be tempted the most to turn from the Lord and not do things according to the way of the Lord is when something out of left field lands in your lap. That's when you're going to be tempted to handle it in your own strength or perhaps cut some corners or perhaps to do some other things that aren't so good to get out from under this. She did what was critical. She did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, no matter the cost to her. Then I will go to the king. Though it is against the law, the critical thing to do in this moment is to obey God. God, forget the laws of men. What is critical to do is to obey God. Last thing. Esther knew that the unexpected is still and will always be subject to the providential. Oops. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Now, hold, hold here. Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. You know the song, right? Que sera, sera, whatever, you know, I won't sing it. But you know it, right? That's called fatalism. Fatalism is the idea that World history is just, everything's unfolding. You can't stop it. There's no rhyme or reason to it. Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. This is not a que sera, sera moment for Esther. She's not saying whatever will be, will be. What she is saying is, if I die, if it is God's will that I die, I die. And if it is not his will that I die, I won't. That's what she's saying. It is a woman who is, that sentence right there is showing us a woman that trusts in the sovereignty of God. He's in control of my life in this moment. And so I can go before the king and I can break the law in this moment because whatever happens is going to happen according to how God wants it to happen. Amen? Perhaps Esther had in mind these words from King David in Psalm 139. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in the book, in your book, before one of them came to be. What does God say to the prophet Jeremiah? Before I formed you, I knew you. Esther understood, folks, listen to me very carefully. Esther understood what I'm afraid this generation has lost complete sight of, and that is this. She wasn't going to live one day longer or die one day sooner than what God had planned for her. And the same applies to you. Amen? Take a deep breath and relax. You, when, when that day comes when the Lord calls you home, it will be the day that he wants, not anyone else. It'll be the day that he wants. Esther knew that the king of Persia, who she was going to approach, ultimately answers to the king of kings. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart 
is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And folks, this is a powerful reminder to each of us here today that everything, and I mean everything, even those things you didn't see coming, are ultimately and fully under the control of God. You must believe that. There are many of you here right now going through, time, going through things you didn't see coming. I want you to know that God, generations past, has already been knew about that, preparing it, so you, there's no accident that you're here. But he is sovereign over what's going to happen also. He's sovereign over the past, the present, and the future at all times and in all ways. And as a result, you do not need to live in fear. You you do not need to fear any circumstance that comes your way or any person that comes your way. And by the way, this this very issue Jesus himself addressed. Listen to this. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Esther. Sounds like Esther, right? This is a woman who understood that principle. Do not fear those who kill. Why did she do that which was critical in this moment? Why did she obey God? Because she feared God more than men. She feared the king of kings more than the king of Persia. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And I want to say one other point here. Remember, folks, your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, does not matter what age they are. When you start to disciple someone, where do you start? You start right here. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you want to disciple people, start there. Teach them that they, that they were created by God and that they're going to be held accountable by him and that their every thought, their every breath, their every word is being held accountable. Now listen to this. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground. That is, die apart from the will of the Father. But even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Folks, you've got nothing to fear. God is in control. He's in control of that which you didn't see coming. And when it lands in your lap, you and I are going to be faced with an opportunity. Sometimes those things that land in our lap, the decisions are easy. easy. Sometimes they're going to be difficult. And like I said, I don't know where culture is ultimately headed. It may be that we as Christians are going to have to make life and death decisions in the days, decades, or even after we're gone, the Christians after us are going to have to make decisions we never dare dreamed because of the pressures they face. Let's pray that we have half the courage that Esther did in her generation, that we would have that in this generation. Amen? That we would be bold and courageous to do what is right, no matter the cost to us in this generation. I finish with a question. Are you, like Esther, ready to make courageous decisions for the Lord in the face of circumstances you never saw coming? The righteous are as bold as lions. I say it, I'll say it, I said it before, I'll say it again. What this world needs are lions roaming the land. Right? Amen? Amen. Thank God for... Esther, this lion, she's amazing. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we come before you. And God, we thank you for Esther. And God, we thank you for world history, how you are orchestrating all of it. You raise up kings and kingdoms and just set them aside. And God, as we looked today, you have orchestrated world history. And at this critical juncture, you raised up an obscure Jewish woman to become queen of Persia. And in that moment, God, she sought you. She turned to the spiritual. When the unexpected landed in her lap, she turned to the spiritual. She sought you, the king of kings, before she ever talked to the king of Persia. And Lord, she did what was critical in that moment. She obeyed you. Even though there was a very good chance she would die, she was willing to do what was right in your eyes, even if it meant breaking the laws of men. And Lord, she ultimately knew that you were in control. 
all the days ordained for Esther were written in your book before one of them came to be. And God, that truth applies to everybody in this room right now. I pray, God, that we would live as free people in the knowledge that you're in control, that we would not fear any circumstance or any person, but God, that we would trust that you are watching over us. You're our King. You're our Savior. We love you. And pray these things in Christ's name. And everybody said with me, amen. God bless you. We'll see you right here next week. Have a great week. The following program is called 
Equipping the Saints, provided by ETS Ministry. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Well, if you've been around here for a while, then you have certainly heard the messages we've preached in the book of Hebrews, and I reviewed that a little while ago in chapter 12, verses 4 through 11, concerning God's discipline. And we see in chapter 12 a quote of Proverbs chapter 3, a very familiar passage to Jonah, probably. It was certainly written by the time he was around. And that passage is so clear. It talks about trusting in the Lord and not leaning on our own understanding and all our ways acknowledging the Lord and giving the first fruits to Him and recognizing that He disciplines us. We see kind of a mini picture of the Christian life in Proverbs 3. And one element of that mini picture of the Christian life ultimately is that God does discipline those who are His. We'll look at it later. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 11, clearly proclaims that if we're not disciplined, if we're not being trained, educated, chastised for the purpose of holiness, then we're illegitimate children. But this discipline is a process, as we will see today, just like it was in the lives of those during the time of Haggai. If you were here when we went through the book of Haggai, they were to be about God's business, and they weren't. Their priorities were all messed up. They were about their own business. And the Lord confronted them with His Word and revealed to them that He was disciplining them. And their response was one of obedience in the midst of that discipline. But if you continue in the book of Haggai, you see not only did they obey, but there was other issues of sin that God then needed to weed out of their lives. And God did do that in the book of Haggai. The same thing we're going to be seeing in the book of Jonah, that Jonah is being disciplined. And today we're going to see that he is disciplined to within an inch of his life, possibly even dying. We're going to look at that issue. And we're going to see that Jonah, after this terrible discipline, does give God the glory. He does give thanks. But obviously, if you've read the whole book, he still isn't quite there yet. But this discipline, as we'll see today, brings him to be obedient. Reluctantly, but obedient. And then we see that next step as God continues to discipline in different ways to bring about the right heart in Jonah as he obeys. So with this in mind, I want to ask the question of this text today, how do we know if God's discipline is working in us? Because if you are his child, he is going to discipline you. And how do we know if it's working? Can you turn with me to the book of Jonah? And we're going to be studying, Lord willing, the 10 verses in chapter 2 today. And I believe we're going to see lessons from the life or almost death of Jonah in this portion. Now, this is a long portion, so I'm going to briefly go through the context. We've gone through it the last few weeks. If you really want to know the scene and how it's set, pull out those CDs or get a CD, and it gives us the history of Israel and the history of the Assyrians and Nineveh. But I'm just going to give you a brief overview, and then we're going to move through a review of chapter 1 quickly, which we saw last week and the week before, and then we're going to look at chapter 2 today, where we're going to see, as I said, how do we know if God's discipline is working. Again, turn to the book of Jonah. Now, first of all, the book of Jonah, as I've shared before, is a true story. It is about a real prophet, Second Kings chapter 14, 
It is not a fish story. It's not an allegory. It is a true story. And it is most important to know it from Matthew 12. And also we see in the book of Luke that Jesus himself, the Son of God, the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, that he himself declared it to be true as he pointed out the fact that Jonah was in the belly of the sea monster and that the men of Nineveh would stand in the judgment against those Pharisees because they repented at Jonah and something greater was there, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a true story. And it's a story that God graciously gives us, but I believe in the time, in its context, was to reveal where Israel's heart was. That Israel's heart at this time was just like Jonah's heart. And maybe some of your hearts are like Jonah's heart. We need to examine ourselves as we go through this. Now, two things we need to remember. First of all, Israel was disobedient on the way to exile. They were disobedient on the way to discipline. And the Ninevites were not saved, and they were on their way to judgment. Now, in a condensed view, Jonah was written during the time of the divided kingdom, northern and southern kingdoms, northern kingdom, ten tribes, southern kingdom, two tribes, northern kingdom, Israel, southern kingdom, Judah. And Jonah was written around 793 to 758 B.C. when the northern king, Jeroboam II, was reigning. And all of the northern kings, as we see in Scripture, were ungodly men turning the hearts of Israel away from the Lord in their wickedness. And it's important to realize that the northern kingdom was just one generation away from God's severe discipline through the Assyrians taking them into exile. And later on, about 140 years later, Judah would go into exile. Now the name Jonah means dove, and he was a prophet and God's servant ministering to Israel during this time. Now certainly we see not only Jonah in this situation, but we see the Ninevites. Well, what about the Ninevites? Jonah was called to go to them, as we'll see. We know that Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. It was the superpower of the day, about 550, 600 miles northeast of Jerusalem. We know that it was a ways away. And in the book of Nahum, as I shared before, Nahum chapter 3, the whole book is a pronouncement of judgment against Nineveh, which God would bring against them. But in chapter 3, we see the nature and character of the Ninevites in which God was judging. They were a wicked people. You can read that on your own time. Nahum chapter 3. They were a wicked people. They were full of lies. They were a bloody people, a bloody city, the Lord calls them. Their spiritual harlotry had influenced the nations, including Israel. They were a murderer and they were liars. They were just like Satan, their father, as we would see in John 8. They were in the domain of darkness and they were on their way to judgment. Even in chapter 3 of Jonah, we see the Ninevites themselves, when they repented, they called out that everyone would turn from their wicked ways, the violence of their hands. They were a violent, wicked people. They were on the road to judgment because of their wickedness. And this is where Jonah comes in. So today I believe we're going to see lessons from the life of Jonah. How do we know God's discipline is working So again, turn to Jonah chapter 2, but we're going to briefly review chapter 1, and I'll just read through it, and then I'll just briefly comment on it. We went through it in depth in the last two weeks. Jonah chapter 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it 
to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Verse 4, And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down, and had fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up and call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. And each man said to his mate, Come and let us cast lots that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now. On whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them, So they said to him, What should we do that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And he said to them, Pick me up, throw me into the sea, then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us, for thou, O Lord, hast done as thou hast pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered sacrifice, and to the Lord they made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. So then God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh to proclaim against them because of their wickedness. God is against Nineveh, and he is going to proclaim against them because of their wickedness. And Jonah, because of his attitude, as we saw last week, towards the Ninevites and a lack of faith concerning God's true character, disobeys God. And he goes the opposite direction to Tarshish. 2,500 miles away, he's on his way. But the Lord doesn't allow him to go far. And he sends a great storm upon the ship, a storm in which they are about to perish. And the pagans call on their gods, these Phoenician sailors, and try to discern how this calamity has come upon them. In God's providence, the lot falls on Jonah. He is questioned, and the cat is out of the bag. He is the reason why this is happening, because he is running from the Lord. The sailors desperately try to save the ship and Jonah, but things get worse. And in the midst of this, the most wonderful thing happens as these sailors are saved. They call upon the Lord and they give the Lord glory and they worship the Lord. They are saved, recognizing his sovereignty and calling unto him. But at this point, Jonah's discipline continues and he is thrown into the sea and swallowed by a great fish. So right at this point, while we have the Phoenician sailors new to the faith, experiencing peace on the seas. And we have Jonah, the disobedient prophet, 
now in the belly of the great fish, experiencing the awful consequences of his sin and the tremendous grace of God's discipline, as we will see. And before we get into chapter 2, we need to go over a few things I didn't share last week concerning verse 17. The term fish or great fish is used to describe sea creatures. It could describe a fish. It could describe a sea mammal like a whale. It is a generic term in Hebrew to describe sea creatures. Now, I've reminded you at times, the Hebrew language does not have a lot of nouns and verbs, as Greek does. And many words are used in different ways based on their context. This is a generic term for sea creatures. Now, we don't want to get all caught up in what kind of fish this was or whale it was. We don't know. But what we do know was it was big enough to swallow Jonah, and it had a stomach big enough that he could hang out in it for three days. And there must have been Aaron there if he didn't pass away. Obviously, he prays later, so there must have been Aaron there for him to stay alive. So whatever you think it is, the Word of God says it is a great fish. It's a big fish. The writer of the NSB translates it this way, sea monster, and Jesus uses the Greek word ketos, which just simply means great fish also. So we don't know exactly what type of fish it is. We just know that Jonah was... Middle of verse 17, in the stomach of the fish, three days and three nights. And the Lord Jesus in Matthew 12 and in Luke also declares this to be true. Just like Jesus was in the ground three days and three nights, Jonah was a type. He typified what Christ would do being in the grave three days and three nights. And this brings us to our passage today in which we're going to see that the Lord brings Jonah to the point of death yet saves him. And more specifically, I believe, as I've shared before, we're going to see and have the question answered, how do we know if God's discipline is working in our lives? Now, if we look at this short chapter, we see a prayer from the belly of the fish, and we will see at the end that God calls the fish to vomit Jonah up on dry land. And within the context of the depths of this chapter, we see, first of all, the depths of God's discipline, how far God will go. We see the fruit of God's discipline, and we'll see the ceasing in this event of God's discipline. So then, first of all, let's look at the depths of God's discipline as Jonah prays from the belly of the great fish. And he's going to, while he's in the belly, recount an earlier prayer while he was drowning. We need to understand how this chapter works. He is in the belly of the fish, and he is praying, and in that prayer, he recounts a prayer when he was outside the fish, drowning. We need to understand that. That'll be helpful to interpret this chapter. Verse 1, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. There, like I said, he's in the fish, right? And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. He's talking about when he did this before. Thou didst hear my voice. For thou hast cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All thy breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from thy sight. Nevertheless, I will look again towards thy holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars were around me forever, but thou hast brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. We're going to see an account of the drowning of Jonah. We're going to see an account of Jonah almost dying. 
And it's a horrifying account when you look at it because God brought him to within an inch of his life. And there are some commentators that we'll talk about later on that believe that maybe he did die. And that type that the Lord was giving goes even farther than that, that he was dead and then raised up. We'll look at that. But first of all, notice in verse 1, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. We need to know where Jonah is praying, as I pointed out before. He is praying from the stomach of the fish, right? He is in the fish praying. And later on, I believe we're going to see in verse 9 and 10 that this prayer most likely took place on the third day right before he was vomited out of the whale. That this is probably when this prayer took place and he is recounting a prayer when he was drowning earlier. Does that make sense? Okay, we'll look at it more. But notice he is praying to the Lord, his God. Now remember, Yahweh, the Lord, has always been Jonah's God. This is not something new to the book. We saw in chapter 1, he says, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord God who made the seas and the dry land. That's who he feared, right? He says, this is my God, even though he was disobeying him. In chapter 4, we see that he prayed to the Lord. He is recounting back before he had fled to Tarshish. That he had prayed to the Lord, his God, while in Israel trying to forestall going to Nineveh. Chapter 4, we'll look at that later. Now I need to make this point out. The place where Jonah is praying is a horrible place. This is a horrible situation. Regardless of what type of fish it was, no doubt it was pitch black. No doubt there were stomach acids. No doubt, being in the sea, he was being tossed all over the place. This was a horrible place. We need to remember that, that Jonah is praying in the midst of a horrible situation. And that we're going to see that he starts to turn in the midst of a horrible situation. He hasn't been delivered all the way yet, and yet he is acknowledging the Lord. And we're going to look at that. So often people don't acknowledge the Lord. They cry out, but they don't acknowledge him until after they're delivered. Jonah is still in the fish. Now he says in verse 2, we're going to see a desperate call. This is an awful situation. And we're going to see him summarize this in his prayer while he's in the fish. He's in the fish and he's going to summarize it. Verse 2, and he said, this is in the fish, praying to the Lord, I called out of my distress to the Lord and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. Thou didst hear my voice. The word translated distress here is often translated trouble. You see it throughout the Psalms translated trouble. He is in great trouble. He is in great distress. And with typical Hebrew parallelism here, we see a parallel statement to help us understand better. He says in the middle of verse 2, I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. Thou didst hear my voice. Jonah was in deep trouble. This is a summary. How bad was the trouble? I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. Sheol was the place of the dead. It was used as a phrase to speak of the grave. He's saying, I cried from the grave. I was about to die. It was over. I was dying. I believe we'll see that. But notice, he says, and he answered me, thou didst hear my voice. God answered Jonah's prayer. Now on a side note, many of these statements made here in Jonah's prayer come from pieces of Psalms. 
And you can look in your notes, as you'll see, a portion of it, as we saw, came from Psalm 31.6 and later on in the psalm. Jonah is paraphrasing and recounting portions of the psalm as he is praying from the belly of the fish. I'm not going to point those out specifically. We're going to look at this text, but in your own time, look at your side notes and go look at those psalms, and you'll see that they are similar to what Jonah says. So much so, some have called this the psalm of Jonah. I'm not going to go that far. I'm going to call it the prayer of Jonah as we see Jonah praying in the midst of the fish. And he says, Thou didst hear my voice. Now it's interesting, this portion that we see of Jonah is like some of the Psalms of Deliverance, where they cry out for help and God delivers them. But there's some things absent here. In the Psalms, we always see them moving from their cry to acknowledgement of their sin, to the acknowledgement of God, and to praising the Lord for what He has done. We don't see that completely in the Psalm here. Jonah has bits and pieces of it, but he's still not there yet. But he does start to respond, as we will see. And we're going to see how do we know if we're responding to God's discipline. So back to our text, we see a desperate call. He is obviously drowning. Verse 3, For thou hast cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All thy breakers and billows passed over me. Jonah begins to explain while he's in the fish how close he was to death when he was out of the fish before he was swallowed. He begins in verse 3 saying, For, I cried for help from Sheol. For, here's why. Here's why I cried for help. Thou hast cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. Current engulfed me. Breakers and billows passed over me. Here's how Jonah sees it as happening. Thou hast cast me into the deep. Now something interesting here. Jonah is giving God the blame here for being cast into the sea. And if you've been following Jonah, that's not quite what happened, right? God is sovereign, and God certainly is over all things, and he is sovereign over Jonah being cast into the sea, and there's no doubt about that. But why is it that Jonah was cast in the sea?
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.